0: Hello and welcome to Forma, a brand new podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network and the audio companion to Forma, the Searcy Institute Magazine, which you can learn more about at searcymagazine.com. I'm David Kern. In this episode, we will be bringing you an interview that I conducted with Angelina Stanford, our good friend Angelina Stanford, who also appears on our other podcast, Close Reads, our book club podcast. And in this interview, we discussed her magazine article called Why Mystery Stories Are the Cure for What Ails Us. We talked about uh, why mystery stories are so enduring, why they've mattered so much to her in her life, and uh, of course, some of the many authors that are worth uh, exploring, and maybe one or two that we should avoid. This podcast is meant to uh, further the conversations, uh, the themes, the ideas that show up and form our our magazine. And if you've been getting our magazine for a while, you might remember it as being just called the Cersei Magazine, but we've tried to focus that a little bit, tried to focus the way we present that but also to allow us to explore um broader themes um with more writers we have decided to go ahead and call it forma you can find this magazine at com. the entire issue is posted there um, and you can also figure out how to subscribe there. There's a, there's a subscribe link. Uh, we send it out twice a year. We'll have another one coming out this winter. So the discussions that we're going to be having on this podcast often will stem from the most recent issues. Um, as I said in this episode, you're going to hear from Angelina Stanford. In future episodes, you're going to hear from uh, writers like uh, Adam Andrews, who wrote an article on The Great Gatsby for the most recent issue, and he and I discussed uh, why The Great Gatsby is an enduring book and why everyone should read it. But we're also going to talk to other people. We're going to talk to, uh, quote, movers and shakers in classical education and in, and in culture uh, at large. Uh, we're going to talk to people like Lee Bortons from Classical Conversations. We're going to talk to people uh, like Brett McCracken, who wrote a recent book on the current state of the church in America. Um, we're going to talk to people about movies and books. We're going to talk to people about uh, modern books and classic books. We're going to talk to people about teaching books and reading books. Um, about the inner life of the teacher and the inner life of the student. Uh, we've got lots of great content lined up for you over the next few months, and every week we're going to release a new one of these episodes. And I'm really looking forward to this. You're going to hear from interviewers like me, but also uh, here and there you're going to hear from other Circe staff, people who are interviewing authors, friends of Circe, um, and other important people who have uh, great work going on and who have important things there that they're trying to say and communicate that we think that everybody who's involved in classical education should at least Uh, be contemplating so that is the goal of this podcast and of the forum magazine to allow us to contemplate important ideas together um in a in a community in in a sense and in a way that is helpful for classical educators wherever you're classically educating whether it's in the school or the home whether you're an administrator or whether you're a homeschool mom we want these conversations to um relate to you to to be helpful to you to inspire and encourage you and hopefully that's what you'll find on this podcast if you're looking for the old quiddity podcast you can find that at searcyinstitute.com under our podcast network page you'll see it in the archives there and of course you can still find it on the Cersei podcast network feed but you're gonna to have to go back a ways as we move along that's why we recommend that you subscribe to the former podcast specifically on whatever podcast app you get these shows will go up at least for a while on the podcast network feed but it will be helpful to you to also subscribe to to the show's feed if you want to uh, be able to find the archives and, and older episodes a little bit more easily so do that check it out um, and of course we would certainly appreciate any reviews that you would be willing to leave but that's enough of the introductory business out of the way. Let's kick it right over to my interview with Angelina Stanford. Again, we talked about why mystery stories are the cure for what ails us. And I began the conversation by asking her when mystery stories became an important part of her life. Enjoy. So in your article, which is all about mystery stories, it's called, officially called, Why Mystery Stories Are the Cure for What Ails Us. You, you talk about the different meanings of mystery stories and why they're meaningful and so forth. But I'm curious in particular when mystery stories started becoming a meaningful part of your own life as a reader. Do you remember when you first read a mystery story?
1: I actually do. I have a... (laughs) (laughs) have <laughs> like a really detailed answer to this question <laughs> not surprisingly so um a
0: f- is it like a very vivid memory
1: yeah well i mean yes and no but, uh, well detective stories mystery stories was um just well, it was a very influential and important form that i attached to very early as a reader and so when i was a kid really little like 3 years old um, my dad had a student job in college where he worked at a book warehouse and hmm. he uh, he would bring home you know the Denton scratch books
0: yeah, yeah. Although,
1: you know, I don't know if he was just lifting him off a truck cuz I don't remember there ever <laughs> being anything wrong with him. But so as a kid, even Dead though we were... and
0: scratch is like a broad term. <laughs> yeah, so,
1: so so we can't sell them if they can't find them. But um so yeah. Even though we were super poor, I had a really nice little library as a kid. Nice, all these little hardback books, and I so I had a hardback set of the Boxcar Children. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And so when I started to read, I read them and loved them. I mean, I can so it's so vivid in my mind. You know that cover of Mike's Mystery and the Blue Bay Mystery oh. and the Yellow House Mystery, and yeah, just uh, yeah. So I loved them. That the, those stories just absolutely captured my imagination. Then when I got old enough to have a library card i had my weekly trip to the library where i got nancy drew books
0: oh yeah oh yeah
1: I, I read all those nancy drew books and for a long time told everyone my favorite author was carolyn Keene. so i was really disappointed <laughs> when i found out she wasn't a real person it was really a man under yeah. a female suit I, that was like seriously that was that was a
0: wasn't it was a the nancy drew author the same
1: as the hardy, as boys. The hardy boys yeah because yeah. i read
0: all the hardy boy books
1: oh yeah i had all the,
0: I have, shelves of the blue binding
1: yeah it was a uh, edward stratemeyer right isn't he he was the author the name, behind yeah. that and then eventually he died and like it was a whole franchise and his kids took it over and
0: yeah, yeah yeah that
1: was a very disillusioning moment to me to find yeah, out that yeah. my favorite childhood author did not actually exist but what if
0: what if laura ingalls wilder hadn't <laughs> existed uh, no, you know? right
1: what a mystery what a mystery the mystery inside a mystery and then uh, yeah. <laughs> when i got older i went from um so i went from nancy drew to sherlock holmes okay from sherlock holmes to agatha christie and from Agatha Christie to Dorothy Sayers.
0: So, which one is the most abiding of those? Dorothy Sayers, would you say you have read the most?
1: Yes, Dorothy. Sa- well, I don't know if I read the most. I read a lot when I was a kid. I read the Max told yeah, a lot. Yeah, fair enough.
0: So, <laughs> let's go back to this idea of kids reading mystery stories because it makes me remember. I think I still have boxes of uh, Hardy Boy books in my parents' garage that I'll probably pull out and give to the boys at some point. Um, and I just ran across a Hardy Boy's book at a used bookstore. And that it brought back nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading, uh, my dad reading Sherlock Holmes to us when I was pretty young. Um, I'm sure he waited till we were ready for the thrill, the thrills of it, you know. <laughs> but I remember that. I remember um, reading different random mystery stories, like even cowboy mystery stories that are of probably no literary merit. <laughs> but why do you think kids are so drawn as as? Like some of the first books we read to ourselves are the first books that we really stick in our craw and, just, and then lead to that nostalgia that we're talking about here. Why do you think that is with kids?
1: Wow, I've never thought about this question I mean, before. Me
0: neither. It just came up.
1: No, this is it, great. Know. My guess is that it has a lot of the same function as the fairy tales do. Mm. Um, my two So, so the, the two greatest loves when I was a kid, my first reading experience was I had a hard copy of A Thousand and One Nights and then I had the Boxcar Children books yeah. and I read both of them just completely obsessively. Huh. And, uh, you know, when I was writing the, the, the mystery article, I thought a lot about the parallels between the function of a mystery story and the function of a fairy tale. So Which of course have,
0: you talk all the time about fairy tales. Yes, you know. right.
1: Exactly. So I think, it, I think it's the same sort of function. It's an attempt to make sense of the, of the world. It's an you know, you see goodness rewarded, you see evil punished. Um, you get that resolution at the end, you get that comic structure, just like a fairy tale. So. My my guess is that children are drawn to it for the same reason they're drawn to fairy tales, because hmm. you can make sense of the world. And some of those Nancy Jew books were intense. I don't know about the Hardy yeah. Boys one. Well, like, no, some but of them were scary. I was
0: thinking about that because I was like, I want to read these to the boys. You know, as you know, Coulter's, I got six and a four year old just turned six. And, I, and then I'm thinking, that might be too scary.
1: Right. But fairy tales are also scary yeah, are. and violent. So, it's the so same, I was questioning right, it's the, whether but that it's, matters. It's the same issue, you know, where Bruno Bettelheim, the child psychologist who studied fairy tales, says that it's good for children, that the interior landscape of a child is terrifying. They're already yeah. afraid of everything. And we make the mistake of thinking that the fears are outside of them when really the fears are inside of mm-hmm. them. And so a fairy tale, the, the violence and, and, the, and, the, and kind of the fear of the fairy tale is where they can meet their own fears and see the fears conquered see that you know the witch yeah. is going to be destroyed the monster can be destroyed you
0: can catch you, the bad guy Yes, yeah, the so robber you know, or whatever.
1: if your parents abandon you you can find your way back you know all these yeah. deep deep fears that we have
0: mm. you know it strikes me also that with with most stories like this that we would think of as scary for most kids now the, the first time they come across things that are really scary is on TV -hmm. Or in movies. Mm. And that does a different thing to a child's imagination than a book. Whereas if you're experiencing scary things for the first time because your parents are reading aloud to you or you're reading it in a book, the imagination can take it and create the scary images. You know, you take the description and it becomes something different than being told how you're supposed to feel about a scary thing, which is what a movie does. And you know as much as well as anybody, I love movies, mm-hmm. but there's a place for mm-hmm. these different things, especially within the child's development. No, I development. completely
1: agree with you on, on that. Um, I am somebody who's much more deeply affected by images than I am by words. So scary images would affect me very differently than meeting these scary ideas on, mm. a, on a page, you know, and I can read a battle scene, bet, but don't want to watch I a bet battle scene. even
0: people who are like...
1: You ought, think that's probably true of uh, everyone? I bet it's
0: probably true of most young kids. Mm-hmm that the imagination, the way your imagination interprets scary things.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me to shake a scary image. That would It would be hard for me. Like I would have dreams about that, and yeah. I would not necessarily have a dream about something I, I read.
0: But if you heard a description of it, the way your imagination translates that right. or interprets it, you'd and, be able to process I also, it?
1: My, my guess would be that... Y- when Brutal Bettelheim talks about the child meets their own fears in the pages of the book, that that would not happen with a scary movie because you're seeing someone else's image of their fear. They're not. Mm. So when you're reading this, there's no description in a fairy tale of what the witch is. It's just, you know, there's the witch. And so whatever the child is imagining, of course, that's connecting it to their own fear. So my guess is watching someone else's fear of image of fear is not going to necessarily have the same effect. It could be it could have the effect of, well, I didn't even know I was supposed to be scared of that and now I'm scared of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So in the in the call out on your magazine here, which I've got right in front of me, as you do, um we drew attention to the to this line from your article. Mystery novels highlight a truth that we know deep down in our souls that order is the proper state of things. And you just alluded to this idea. you were saying why they are meaningful but um you talk all the time about why fairy tales do that but in particular how does a mystery story um reveal or highlight that order is the proper state of things
1: so every uh, mystery stories they start in a moment of chaos there's been some kind of crime committed the dead body being the perfect image of that
0: so so we on close reads recently we read uh, murder must advertise and it begins before the crime's even been after the crime has been committed right and that's, is that is that the common that's trope? very
1: common that's because if you think about especially if you're talking about a detective, the detective comes onto the scene after the crime has already happened. Um, and that's a little bit different than maybe like a thriller where they slowly lead yeah. you and they're, and they're, 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 they're leading you into the victim story and you kind of see a little bit of a backstory, but like a right. classic right. detective story, the detective comes onto the scene after the crime has already happened. So the, the,
0: the person comes to Sherlock Holmes saying, yes, this is my problem. Exactly. I need you to help me solve it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, so the story in that case opens in the chaos, but there's always the hint that there has been a piece that's disturbed right so mm. so, um, so, one of the ways I like to think about it is that a com- it's the disruption of a community whatever that mm. community is so let's say it's you know it's, the office
0: that in Murder Most Advertised
1: yes it's a, it's an office or it's a, a family outing or it's a vacation lodge or it's, or it's the train. people on train yeah. yes that's what yeah. we're coming up to so there's some community it's either a makeshift temporary community like we're all on this train together or it's you know a family or it's a group of people who work together but that community has been disrupted because of the chaos and so what ends up happening is each of the characters then move toward isolation because everyone's a suspect you don't know who who to suspect right who I could be I could be in this room alone with this murderer and I don't even know and so the community is disrupted and so as the crime is solved what we see happening is that the community moves together again at the end, so it's, mm. it's, it, is a, it is a restoration of justice, but it 's also a restoration of order because the community comes back together at the end, and and you know the suspicion is gone, and now they can love each other and trust, and everybody takes a takes a breath and um, it's also it 's always interesting when they do a twist where it 's like a couple, a romantic couple, and they 're kind of suspecting each other and because oh, yeah. you really don 't know who to trust. And so all of the relationships are splintered and fragmented. So at the end there's that sense of order. And so when I talk about that the the mm-hmm. story reveals that longing in our souls because the whole time you're reading it, right, you just, you 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 can't stay in the tension of that chaos. You have to get to the end and it's solved. And you have to get to the end and you see everybody coming. There's always that end scene. It doesn't just end with them carrying the bad guy away, right? There's always that after scene where now the community is reestablished and trust is restored and yeah. love and relationships are restored. And yeah. we so desperately need that. That's why they're so satisfying. That's why we keep going back to them, even though we joke, as we did on the Dorothy Sayers podcast, that there's a formula. There absolutely is a formula to these books. And if the formula is violated, we don't like it as a reader. We, you know, I sometimes joke about, you know, you're 400 pages into this detective novel and you get to the end and suddenly it turns nihilistic. And he's like, there's no meaning in the world. We're never going to catch this by, you, you know, and, and I'm out. We we would be yeah. furious with that. But what we would say it was artistically a failure and it was cheap and he painted himself in a corner, didn't know how to get out. Yeah. And we'd be mad because we want the order, we want justice, we want the restoration of order. And so in that sense I think the parallels between a mystery story and a fairy tale is just very, very one on one. There's some threat mm. to to order, there's chaos, there's, you know, suspicion and it's not safe. It's threatening. It's violent. And we look toward the movement of of good being restored, order being restored. In the case of a mystery story in particular the virtue is justice. Um, we want justice, which is so fascinating to me because we live in a time that just really kind of denies transcendent virtue, right? That there is good, that there is justice in the world. Um, and we've got social movements just, that are just spawning because they don't believe there's anything as justice, right? And then you have to fight for it. And so in a detective story to mm-hmm. see that justice is done, some sort of justice is done. Sometimes it's complicated, but that's very satisfying to us as readers.
0: Do you think that where is the fine line between the traditional mystery story and literature? I think sometimes people are like think of mystery stories as I don't want to say lowbrow but you know not on par with other books that we would consider literature, you know. Right. And and then so and and then therefore the question is I suppose or what that that's that's kind of begging the question what what part of our reading life should mysteries play? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've talked about this all the time. You, me, and Tim, when we're on close reads, <laughs> like every episode, I'm like, so spy novels, you know, so I love a good spy novel and a good mystery novel. Those are like my, and a good Western novel. Like I love genre fiction, mm-hmm. genre mm-hmm. movies. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to say that, I'm you know, I like what might be considered lowbrow in some instances, even as there are certain versions of those genres that are certainly literature. You know, Graham Graham Green. I was just thinking of Graham Green.
1: I was just thinking of that. I don't. I don't think that I can say any genre is automatically going to be excluded from an artistic, you know, Mm -hmm. expression of the genre. I think you see artistic expressions, literary expressions, then also just kind of cheap, dime store kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Graham Greene wrote a spy novel and he's brilliant. And so that's that's going to have value. For me, that's what Dorothy Sayers did for me personally was uh, she reconciled my love of detective novels and my love of literature because it's so literary what she's doing. But not all detective stories. I mean, the form itself is valuable. And anytime you encounter it, there's going to be something good that happens. But obviously not all of it is is literary. I remember... Somebody uh, on a beach vacation shoved a Mary Higgins Clark book at me and I read it and it was so awful. It was just, <laughs> so, I kept saying, I feel like I'm watching a TV movie. It was just, it was yeah. so plot driven. There was nothing literary about it. It didn't give me any insight into the human condition. It was just, it was just awful. But Agatha Christie, I think is, does, does a good job and Dorothy Sayers. So yeah, I don't think the the form itself is necessarily lowbrow, although it can, but I think... I think this actually speaks to a larger question. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that we all struggle with, can art be popular? Like what is the, what is the um, tension there between popularity and art? And uh, I think that I struggle with this myself, that there's almost like this negative gut response. If something's too popular, like, Oh, it must not be good. Yeah, It can't be good. If everyone likes it, it must not be good. As if literature has to be inaccessible for it to be, Artistic, which of course we don't believe that. I have to, I give myself these little talks like Shakespeare was popular, Angelina. Shakespeare was popular. Charles Dickens was popular. This was common. Jane Austen was popular. Yeah, this was common every day. Pay a nickel, watch this. You know, this was the movies. This was the Elizabethan version of an afternoon at the movies. Uh, so yeah. it doesn't automatically mean it's bad because it's popular. Although certainly there's plenty of evidence that maybe the mass public is not the best guide of what's artistic. But and there was
0: also bad stuff written in that's right. 1830.
1: That's right. So just because everyone likes it doesn't mean it's good. But just because everyone likes it doesn't mean it's automatically bad either. Like right. So there are obviously some artists who can transcend and and be accessible on multiple levels like a Shakespeare where... Uh, you know, everybody can sort of get what they want out of it. And I feel like the detective genre is a genre that has the potential to do that. Because even if you're not picking up on all of the, I mean, you know, Lord Peter, in all the Dorothy Sayers versions I have, Lord Peter's constantly talking in Latin and they don't translate it. <laughs> you know, But it's okay because you yeah. don't have to be able to translate it to still follow the flow of the story and really enjoy it. But then if you do translate it, it takes it to this whole other level. So you can, you can sort of get what you, what you want to get out of it. But yeah. so.
0: But, so then you're talking about how like um, Dorothy Sayers helped you see the bridge the gap between your love of literature and your love of mystery stories. Um, what are the defining characteristics of a mystery story that goes beyond the Mary Higgins Clark that you're talking about, and you know we don't need to disparage Mary higgins Clark on the, on the show <laughs> but but like what are, when you My start, when you start thinking about um, when you start recognizing that combination between true literature and the mystery story, what are some of the things that people should look out for when they're thinking about that or when they're reading a mystery story and trying to identify just how good is this and how much is it just, it's, you know, tickling a fancy (laughs) as my grandma used to say.
1: I'm not opposed to tickling fancies uh, (laughs) or having my fancy tickled. Yeah, exactly. um, That's no, that's a really good question. For me, it has to do with the, with the world that they've created and the characters they've okay. created. So, is it is it moving beyond just basic plots? Are the characters is it
0: more than the whodunit?
1: Yes, if it, it yeah. has to be more than the whodunit, are the characters three dimensional and interesting? Do they seem like real people, or are they just types? You know, so mm. is there? So, what, can I
0: ask you a further question mm-hmm. on that? How do you know if a character is more than a type?
1: Oh wow! How do I, oh gosh um, they seem multi layered. They seem seem complex. Uh, sometimes. They might have contradictory motivations like, like a they real have an person. Inner life? They have like, an inner life. Yeah, that's a great that, way to put it. Yeah. That's a great so way it's to put it. So it's more than
0: just their it's like their observer, it's more than just what they're seeing, but the, what they're translating what they're seeing mm-hmm. into something meaningful.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things that Dorothy Sayers does is she gives an inner life to the lower class in the in the novels. Mm. You know? Like where, where there's that type of so, so if a maid comes in to be questioned or the, you know, she, there's always like some guy in a pub who's yeah, like, yeah, he's yeah. like a you know a work guy you know yeah. i work i work on the roads or whatever um, <laughs> that could easily turn into a stock character in a stock moment where he's just you know like get him in get him yes, out yes you know yeah. where it's like a law and order episode like and here's the prostitute and here's what she saw and that yeah. was what she, that's the prostitute and you could just label them like you know yeah. like, there's, and like there's a street cleaner they a, a vendor.
0: call it's like yes or like they're writing it's like prostitute number one or yes you know exactly, construction exactly. worker number four exactly yeah. so
1: I'm always delighted in a Dorothy Sayers novel to see that she goes beyond that. Like there's there's an inner life there. There's a you get the sense that this is a real person and not yeah. just witness number one. Yeah. Witness number two. Yeah. But so even minor characters. I know there's a lot of comedy in there, too, because there'll be, um, you know, the, the de- main detective character will realize, OK, I've got it. I've got a I've got a Treat this like this witness, like a human being. I'm going to have to speak to them in a way that's going to make them trust me and feel like. So there's a whole other kind of how do humans yeah. interact? How do we trust? Who do you know is trustworthy? How do you know you're getting a yeah. credible witness? And then they'll talk about about all of that. Um, and so there's there's just yeah, right. They say f- feel like a real person and not just a stock. Yeah, not just witness number one. So that's one thing that I'm looking for is is the is the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is the. I feel like when it crosses over into that it's literary um, is when I see interesting comments on the world. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but where you get the sense that this is happening in a real place, in a real time, um, and, and the place and the time that it's set in is meaningful to the overall story. So it's not just...
0: So, like, there's a context for yeah. the story to take place in that makes it meaningful,
1: right? Right, and and they're they're almost always making a larger comment. Like, Dorothy Sayers is making all kinds of comments. I mean, she just fascinates me. That's one of the reasons why I really liked Murder Must Advertise. I felt like she had so much to say about the modern world and advertising and consumerism and materialism mm-hmm. and where we were going. And
0: it's more than it's more than just like it couldn't have taken place anywhere else, right? Like that couldn't have this taken place. This is clearly
1: place. post-war London. Right, Boom.
0: right, and even the advertising part. I guess like mm-hmm. this, the, it couldn't have. If it doesn't happen in an advertising agency, it's a different story.
1: Totally different story. Yeah.
0: If like it happened outside the post office, and the guy f- fell on the steps and his body was found, it's a different story.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. And so I think that's what keeps the formula from feeling thin. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense where, yeah. where it just feels like here's the stock formula for the plot and now we're just going to, instead of prostitute, this time it's a stripper, you know, like yeah. uh, again, going back to the law and order where that's right. super formulaic and, right. yeah. and it and it, and all the characters are, um, of course they don't have time to and develop like, them. The
0: edges are like a little more gray and a good story. Like you yes. don't see the, the trying to create something. Like right. It feels right. a little right. less.
1: No, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that for me is important. What is the world and that there's a comment on, on the world and that, yeah, that they're rooted in a place and time and that that's somehow part of the story. And also, I appreciate the social commentary. Uh, that's one of my favorite. This is why I can reread Dorothy Sayers books, because after I already know who done so like it, it doesn't Sayers? matter. You I like, may you, have mentioned are, that. Yeah, are you a
0: Dorothy <laughs> Sayers fan?
1: <laughs> I am a Dorothy Sayers fan. But, you know, so, my, you know, my mom reads a lot of detective stories, but she won't read them more than once because once she knows who did it, oh, that's yeah, it. Right. Yeah. That, um, and, and so that's another and you, way, like, forget. <laughs> I forget <laughs> you who did it. Care, Cause yeah. it's like, so not even the point. Yeah. Cause I just, I'm just enjoying being yeah, it's the in the experience, world, yeah. you know? So, you know, what's, what's the last one she did? Gaudy night. Um, you know, not the last one she did, but the last one in that series, but, uh, you know, all she has to say about oxford and female education and what it means to be a woman and how much a intellectual mom, woman struggles with her own womanness and oh and and yeah. marriage and and who has to give what in a marriage and can you get married and not lose yourself i mean this is not the typical themes of a mystery novel yeah,
0: yeah. in the in the article you talk about the idea of um small details oh yeah being what do you say? Something like that small details are often the key thing that solves the, Mm -hmm. the, the mystery. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Why do you, why in the best mystery stories are small details so important? And what is the effect that has on the story and the reader and meaning and all that kind of stuff? That's a super general question. What effect does this have on everything?
1: (laughs) It it affects everything, David. (laughs) I really like where you're going with this.
0: (laughs) Like you mentioned, um, in Christie's Agatha Christie's five little pigs, the scent of lavender is the key or in strong poison by Sayers that Lord Peter sees the hidden significance of a crack in an mm-hmm. egg and is able to find the real killer and rescue his beloved. it's your line from the story.
1: So one of the things that a mystery story does is, well, and this is a medieval diet. So in, in, the mid, in the medieval mindset, everything is meaningful and significant. Nothing is random. Everything is one part of a larger picture and it's a meaningful universe. Mm-hmm. And that meaning ultimately comes from God post enlightenment world, we struggle with this. We don't just struggle. With it. We've just rejected it, right? This is yeah, a meaningless, we rail it. random universe. There is no cohesion. There is no unity. Therefore we talk about things being random all the time. So one of the things I love about a detective story is nothing is random. Nothing. If, if the author has said he dropped his handkerchief, that's a clue. We all know that's a clue. Right. right.
0: Unless um, they're a bad writer.
1: Unless, unless they're a bad writer. My kids are so, I mean, gosh, my youngest one from the time she'd be five. I mean, she could just totally pick up on where the author is drawing our attention to something. Mm-hmm. and That this is going to be meaningful. So nothing is random. So
0: that's really interesting. Because in a way, one of the things we can do with mystery stories is teach our children how to read. Oh, yeah. Because our children are going to learn to pick up on things. They're going to learn to read closely. They're going to learn to be observant. And to listen for the right, right things. You're
1: and, and, and see, one of the things I like about a detective story is it puts the reader automatically in that mode of, I have to pay attention to everything. Yeah. Oh, they mentioned twice he's left-handed. This is going to be significant. Yeah. Right? That's that's yeah. how my kids and I read it. Like, oh, that's the second time they mentioned he's yeah. left-handed. That something's going to happen of and this. And certainly
0: sometimes the author going to use it as misdirection. That's right. Because that's part of the experience. That is
1: part of the experience. Right. Being but, able to sort through it. Yeah. But the reader automatically enters a detective story, I think, in a different frame of mind. Right. So there's almost a sense in which the reader is much more active in a detective story because they are also trying to solve the, the crime. Mm. They're not just passively waiting yeah, for the, yeah. but that's part of the fun yeah. is that we're trying to figure out, can I put together the clues? Can I figure out what's significant? Can I figure out who did it? Yeah. Uh, that's one of the ways I read. I'm always trying to say, can I solve this before the yeah, main character of course, does? Yeah, uh,
0: it's not, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the fun, fun, right? Yeah. That's
1: the fun. And that's, so that's why I think that genre is so important because it puts the reader. we just approach a detective story in a much more active mode as a reader. Yeah. So we're very alert and alive to every detail. Nothing is random because everything is potentially the key to unraveling it. So it's not just hmm. that it's not random. Everything is potentially the key that unravels yeah. the mystery of the universe. It's, yeah.
0: It's not. And th- th- that's, that's great. Even the smallest thing can be the biggest thing.
1: Exactly. So the crack in the egg and strong poison that you just mentioned once at yeah. the beginning ends up all of a sudden. He's like oh, at the end, oh, the crack in the egg. How did I not see this? And then it yeah. all comes together.
0: And any character to that same end
1: mm-hmm.
0: can be the most important character. That's right. The 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 maid or the chauffeur or the construction worker can be as important as you know the Lord. And that's why, like in a you know, we're going to be reading. um Murder on the Orient Express, coming up on close reads, and when you get or and then there's the end. Then there were none. Is that the one mm-hmm. where they're all That's on the, on the island or whatever? Yes. And you, any you have all these different characters, and it's fun because they're from different worlds, they and it's a
1: contrived at, temporary community, but it is a community,
0: right? And they all have a different, in, a, in you know, in, ostensibly they're all going to have a different role, a different relationship to each other, but every character matters just as much as the other character Mm -hmm. um the butler or the the servant guy in on the on the orient express matters as much as the princess in the Mm -hmm. grand i mean i don't want to give anything away that
1: that's that's exactly right and and you know, detective stories are so interesting because it's for too of, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> well, yeah, really, it it is because the the servant class was often just not seen. Yeah. Right. They're they're just they keep everything going. They're behind the scenes, but they don't they don't almost they don't count. Right. The aristocratic family that's being served. They're the ones who count in, in a sense. But in a detective story, it becomes very clear that the servants know way more about what's going on than you think they do, that they have eyes and ears. Mm.
0: Um, yeah, they're often given a level of respectability or, or
1: right. intelligence. I mean, though. I was just, while you were talking, I was thinking of the idea that the butler did it, that that really was a revolutionary idea the first time, mm. because they're sort of below your notice, right? But to, yeah. to, well, what a what a violation of the whole way that that works. Your, your butler is supposed to be this kind of, you know... Uh, unspoken force that just makes the whole house run smoothly. And then if you find out that they're actually the villain that just turns everything on its head. So
0: on a somewhat related note to that, it made me think of this. Why do you think that the mystery novel, the spy novel in particular, those two genres, which are fairly closely tied together are, are, or took on such a life of their own in the 20th century. Um, Particularly, you know, the best mystery, like the really first spy novels came out around the time of World War One. shortly thereafter. Um,
1: Which is also the Golden Age of the Detective the Novel. The Golden Age
0: of the Detective Novel, I was just going to say that, yeah. And you talk about that in your article a little bit. And then that carries on through the 50s, 60s, and then the spy novel really has, Le Carre is still alive, you know, that's still going strong. Um, and then we get all your dime and pulp mystery novels that are still you know, a dime a dozen at the grocery, you can get them at the grocery store, you know, mm-hmm. right next to the romance novels. Yeah. But there's been a long and enduring life for mystery stories of all kinds since then. Why do you think that is?
1: I'm not sure that that could have happened in any other time period than this one. I I, I think that world war one just shook us so badly. All of a sudden nothing made sense. And I do talk about that in the article, but it's, mm. it is impossible to overstate how much World War I threw the world into chaos, spiritually, emotionally, politically, economically. I mean, every possible realm, every relationship was fundamentally changed, parent and child, husband and wife, I mean, the whole yeah. world just, and of course we're on the other side of that. So it's hard. We've always been in post-World War One people. It's hard for us to imagine what it was like before, but yeah. it just absolutely shook the world. So when you think about the angst and the, and the uncertainty and the chaos. How everything was just thrown into chaos, think then mm. the great comfort that 's found in a detective story which starts in chaos and moves to order it 's the promise that order can be restored out of this chaos. If you mm. just hang on, mm. we can make sense of all of this somehow uh, and and so i 'm fascinated by how mystery stories still top the charts I mean as, as always look at the top, any given week you look at the top ten bestsellers there 's going to be a mystery story in there, even if it 's not of great quality because the people are just deeply longing for some kind of reminder that order is going to come out of this chaos. You can make sense of the world. The world is meaningful. It's not random. A detective story is not random. It's so, you know, yeah. by definition, someone is crafting this story very tightly f- with meaning. And I think that we find a deep, deep spiritual comfort and emotional comfort in these books. And I, I doubt seriously that most readers could articulate what it is but people have a, an intense attachment to mystery stories unlike other forms of, of art there's something about a mystery story that's very very special
0: I think it's interesting how when we think about vacations and stuff like that mm-hmm. like how many people they go on vacation yes. and, one of the, and they're like they grab yes. their favorite mystery novel Absolutely. or something like that to take I just went on vacation um, for the first time in a long time and the whole like weeks leading up to it I was like I can't wait to bring a good mystery story. So actually, I brought a spy novel, but essentially it was a mystery story. Right. It was, it was just involved international espionage, but it was essentially tr- trying mm-hmm. to solve who did this thing.
1: Right. No, exactly. On um, a much grander scale.
0: Yeah. And I was like, that was one of, the th- one of the three or four things I was most excited about. Playing on the beach with my kids, <laughs> cooking some good food, spending time with family, and reading a good mystery story.
1: I think that's probably true for most people. You know? We don't
0: think let's bring... I mean, some people bring Shakespeare or Homer or whatever. I a don't. A lot of people do. I don't. Uh, my dad. Cause learned, I sure.
1: consider that. those are my workbooks. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Your school.
1: <laughs> school books. No, I'm, I'm the same way. I love, I bring a good mystery where where I'm going. I love, I love it. I love mystery movies. I like, lo- you know, I just, yeah. I like that genre a whole lot. And I, 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 yeah, there is something very interesting about when we want to take a break from our hard, normal lives, you know, we're, they're obviously we're we're seeing that as a source of comfort and rest hmm. which makes yeah, sense to me too yeah. given how anxiety I mean, when you live in chaos all the time, when you think you're in a random universe, that that produces intense anxiety because you have to control everything all the time to make sure that you can control the outcome. So just to be able to step away from all that and to enter a detective story where you can rest in the fact that, you know, orders are going to come out of this chaos. Mm. Everybody knows it. And that's why they like it, which is always so funny to me when we act like, oh, formula, that's a bad thing. No, the formula is why everybody wants to read a mystery novel. They want that solution Mm -hmm. at the end and they need it.
0: I feel like maybe the word formula is just off-putting to some people. It
1: is just like the word form. I mean, we just don't like the idea that there's, there's a form. Yeah. But I I really am intrigued with this idea as we talk about it, about how a detective story forces the reader to be active. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that really interests me that we are an active participant in this as opposed to other art forms where we might just be more passively watching it. We want to solve it. We want to solve the puzzle
0: yeah okay so to conclude let's wrap up with can you we've referenced a bunch of different authors and a bunch of different titles in this this show can you can you come up with um two or three like you mystery stories that you would say are that you would recommend reading now that are of high literary quality as well i mean I, are you just going to tell me everything by dorothy sayers oh, everything course. by author conan doyle
1: well, I know. well okay we can talk about agatha christie um Of course, you should read the next one that we're reading, River on the Orient Express, and you should follow along with that. Her masterpiece is is And Then There Were None, Mm -hmm. uh, which is just which really is a brilliant premise.
0: And for anybody who wants, who's curious, interested in this, Folio Society just released a special and then there were none really? edition.
1: No way. Yeah. Now so that, I how it's much like does that just support the idea though that this is of literary quality? Because that's, they, that's a great point. They, I mean for her, you know, Agatha Christie is the most selling novelist of all
0: time. And the only Book. The only two authors or books that have sold more copies than her are the Bible and Shakespeare.
1: That's right. And Shakespeare's not a novelist, so yeah, exactly. I mean that's amazing. And she's a lot. He's a lot older. Yes, he is. I mean, but that so that tells yeah. you something about our time. That yeah. that is the book people are going to. That yeah, because because I mean we were joking about how do you know that it's literary quality. I mean, really, Agatha Christie is up there with Shakespeare in terms of sales. That's lasting is one of the ways you know.
0: It is. Does it last? No,
1: that is absolutely true. And I don't think that we're going to see that change. So I'm a big Agatha Christie fan, but a lesser known work by her is one of her first ones. So this is before she invented um, Hercule Poirot and um, uh, Miss Marple. Uh, It's uh, The Secret Adversary. And what I like about that one is that it's more like a spy novel where somebody Mm. just sort of falls into this thing, and now they're kind of caught up in it. It's one of my favorites by her. So, that's an early one by her that I really like. Of and course, anything by Dorothy Zaves.
0: Well, if somebody had never read, like if they hadn't been reading along with us on Close Reads or whatever, where would you tell them to start?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question. Sayers.
0: Would you start at the beginning of the... It's such
1: a hard question because she develops as a writer and the characters oh, yeah. develop. The, we, we talked about that on the Close Reads yeah. Facebook page, where to start. You yeah, can yeah. start at the beginning, but you don't have to start at the beginning. So a lot of people think the nine tailors is, is her best one and, and start there. Um, I don't remember what the first one I read was. The first one that really captured my attention was Gaudy Knight. And then I worked backwards from there to find out the backstory of these characters. But Gaudy Knight and probably the Nine Tailors are probably her most quality works.
0: Of course, um, Edgar Allan Poe yes. and Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes. Those mm-hmm. are those are great places to start.
1: Yes, the Purloined Letter by Edgar Allan Poe is considered to be the first detective story.
0: Yeah. And, um... When it comes to Conan Doyle, where would you start with Sherlock Holmes? If people haven't read it, or they're thinking about reading it to their kids, would you oh. start? Would you just grab any random story, I or would. would you read *The Hand of the Baskervilles*, the novel?
1: I just grabbed any random story. That's how I approached it.
0: Yeah, and the great thing—I mean, they're not really connected. I mean, they are kind of connected, but a lot of them are independent, and they're not—they don't mm-hmm. take forever. One to read. just
1: one little word about. Uh, Sherlock Holmes I'm you know I liked Sherlock Holmes this isn't like a huge criticism but Dorothy Sayers and and her her group and the detective club did not feel like Sherlock Holmes was a true he didn't meet their definition of a true detective story because for them and, and this speaks to what I've been talking about is the reader as an active participant in making meaning out of it they thought that a true detective story you have to give the reader all the information to solve the crime um, and then and
0: Sherlock Holmes the those he it. hides it like he'll yeah. pick
1: up a letter and put it in his pocket and then 10 pages later like well in my pocket I have the key to unraveling this and of course you're thinking oh if I knew what that I said I suppose that's
0: because most of the stories are written from Watson's perspective
1: oh that's true too oh I hadn't thought about that that is so, true too but you can't you cannot the reader cannot solve, solve yeah. a Sherlock Holmes yeah but you can solve an, and the, see that speaks to the artistry of these writers if they really are giving you all the information and you still can't figure it out until the end that is some good writing
0: yeah that's true yeah I guess the value of a Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes stories is the characters are really rich. Oh, yes. Lots I mean, Holmes. I love
1: them. I'm not criticizing yeah, right. them. It's just, yeah, sure. it's just you're not, don't feel bad if, you, if you're like, I don't know why I can't solve them because <laughs> you don't have all the facts. <laughs> right.
0: In some ways, the Holmes stories are thrillers, maybe oh, more yeah. than they are true traditional mystery stories, I suppose.
1: But or, he's given us such a—I mean—he's given us the archetype of the brilliant yeah. main character who's kind of tortured and true. awkward and true. Yeah, he's just—he's yeah. a fascinating character. I yeah. mean, he's basically showing us what an an autistic guy, right? He—he's got Aspergers. I mm-hmm. think is how they do it in the new Sherlock Holmes. Is they just come out and say he's got Aspergers, and you think oh, that's true? That's yeah. totally Sherlock Holmes. I mean, yeah. that's just. He was really ahead of his time with developing that. I mean, now that is now that is the archetype, right? We always have a detective who's got some kind of odd, off thing yeah, about him, yeah. right? A, a drug addiction. He's an alcoholic. There's this...
0: Yeah. That has not become as such much, an archetype. There's not as much of the... Um wealthy
1: yes there's less of the aristocratic <laughs> detective hobbyist yes. right there's there's less of that and more of the I, gritty i've got a drug addiction i
0: don't know what the american version of the the aristocratic <laughs> hobbyist
1: is well, but we have one that's probably why the genre took a very different turn in you, the united states that's true yeah, we, yeah we've got much much more of the i'm the alcoholic
0: <laughs> well yeah well also it's kind of a wild west approach to that's storytelling true. i think is probably a little bit more of an american trope archetype well thank you for joining us for this episode
1: thank you for having me this was a fun conversation
0: if people want to learn more about your article they can either make sure they've subscribed to our magazine if you haven't gotten a copy yet we can we're happy to mail that to you you can learn about that at our website or you can head over to circe magazine.com where the article is also posted in its entirety if people want to get in touch with you and ask you questions about this are you up for that sure sure <laughs> where can people I,
1: I can't say should, I'm gonna answer right away but, well that's fair enough
0: um is there a good place people can, can yes, find yes there's you? a
1: contact page on my website Perfect. angelinastanford.com you can click on contact and I will get that message awesome
0: and you have online classes you offer there so if somebody's listening to this at a time when they're looking for that what are your classes in
1: uh, the Great Books. I'm currently offering classes to high school students, middle school students, and I have some adults auditing my class as awesome. well, which is awesome. a lot of fun.
0: And then, of course, yeah, you occasionally do webinars on different fairy tales yep. and children's stories.
1: And the intensives, uh, that's a great fun for me when when we do that as yeah. well.
0: Yeah, week-long.
1: Right, the week-long yeah, classes. Yeah.
0: So if people want to learn about that and study literature with Angelina in any number of those ways, it's angelinastanford.com or just at our website at Cersei Institute.com. Absolutely. So, well, again, thank you.
1: Thanks a lot.